0: So, uh, for those of you who have been reading or have read uh, Andrew Olerton's book on Romans, which we, you all know by now we're using uh, to accompany our sermon series, uh, you'll know then in chapter 8 of Andrew's book, he begins with an anecdote about a favourite climbing adventure of his in Scotland. Now, in fact, Jeanette, my wife, and I once went up a mountain, Mount Snowdon in North Wales, uh, many years ago now. Now, if you're picturing us in climbing helmets and all the gear, I'm afraid you're on the wrong track, because uh, we went up uh, (laughs) using the mountain railway system, which did get us quite close to the top of the mountain. In fact, with only a few steps, we were able to stand at the very top uh, of the mountain. And the view we had, uh, similar, I assume, to Andrew Ollerton's experience on his Scottish mountain, uh, was spectacular. So stretching my anecdote uh, a little, if you'll allow me, um, it got me thinking, actually, uh, as I was preparing for this sermon, uh, how just as Jeanette and I didn't really have to make any effort to get to the top of that mountain uh, to see those amazing views. In the same way, if you think about it, we too have to make no initial effort, do we, to obtain God's mercy, to obtain God's forgiveness. And that's because, we know, it's a free gift of grace to us, this undeserved kindness from God. No effort is required or asked of us to achieve it, save accepting that we need to change and placing our trust in Jesus. As Olerton actually put it uh, back in chapter 3 of his book, he said, God no longer sees our guilt or failure. Instead, we are righteous in his sight and welcomed into his covenant people, regardless of our ethnicity or morality. This is justification, he says. It includes both a vertical dimension, where we're put right with God, and a horizontal dimension. We become part of God's family and enjoy fellowship around the table together. Actually, again, when I was doing some back reading for my sermon, I discovered that there's a Bible used in New Guinea, written in pidgin English, which instead of using the word justification, has instead, God, he say, I'm all right. And I think that's a brilliant translation. So the first verse here in chapter 12 of Romans says then, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy. And that's because God's mercy and saving grace has been made clear to us, been revealed to us, if you will, maybe not least of which through these preceding chapters uh, in Paul's letter to the Romans that we've been looking at. But as such, we now have this view, and what a spectacular view of mercy and grace that is for us all to see. Now, I don't know about you, but on occasion I found these previous chapters of Romans a bit like hard work, and I'm so grateful that I didn't have to preach on chapters 9 to 11 that poor old Anna had to preach last week, which I thought she did a great job. Uh, But as Andrew Olison says, that may be because we've taken on some of the most challenging terrain in the Bible within these chapters. But as Andrew also says, we now have a view of God's great purpose. Stretching back, as he says, to the dawn of time and forward into eternity. Ollison goes on to say, we now need to learn how to apply the gospel in practical ways, and that's really where we find ourselves uh, at the start of Romans chapter 12 here. So as we, if you will, begin our descent of devotion, which is the title of chapter 8 of Andrew Olison's book, we see that Paul urges us here, doesn't he, right at the start of Romans chapter 12 to think of ourselves as living sacrifices, and then the following verses go on, don't they, to speak about how we should also become like these loving servants. And it's it's this that I want to look at together for a brief moment of time this morning, how we allow ourselves to become like living sacrifices, and then secondly, how we demonstrate this practically uh, by becoming loving servants. So, firstly, let's consider this idea of becoming living sacrifices. In effect, we have to move away, if you will, uh, from being conformed. Oh, it's died conformed by the pattern of this world, oh, it's there, good, Uh, uh, as it says in verse 2 here, to being transformed. The pastor and Christian writer John Ortberg, in conversation with the late Christian philosopher Dallas Willard, in his book Living in Christ's Presence, suggested that in verse 2 here, where it says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Ortberg suggests that's really interesting grammar there, he doesn't say, transform yourself. But yet it is a command, he says. There is something we're supposed to do. Ortberg goes on, but we can't do it ourselves. It's a passive command, a passive imperative, if you like. We are to be transformed. How? By the renewing of our minds. And Andrew Olison, too, in his book says this. Uh, Verse 1 here in chapter 12 goes on to say that our goal is to be holy and pleasing to God. So, the descent of devotion then means consciously resisting the pressure to conform to the way of the world. Effectively, Paul here is urging the Christians not to let the values and certainly the practices of how the rest of the world acts shape their thinking or, for that matter, influence their behavior. Paul instead encourages them to simply allow their minds to effectively be renewed, renewed by God's truth, and in doing so, come to understand, and then, in understanding, then follow God's will for each one of them, as Paul urges here, to become like living sacrifices. Now, at first thought it might seem a bit challenging for us, mightn't it, to have to consider becoming like actual living sacrifices. You may be thinking it seems a little extreme language being used here by Paul. But Paul is really explaining how it's our mindset that needs to be changed. We are to offer ourselves, all of ourselves, to God. But that can be a challenge for us, can't it? Because whether we like it or not, we are no doubt immersed in, I'm sure, surrounded by, if you like, the everyday pressures that are exerted on us by, let's be honest, a predominantly post-Christian secular culture. And this inevitably influences us. Ollison says we are really like the proverbial frog in the saucepan as it is slowly heated up. We're unaware of what's happening around us and the influence it exerts on the way we think. Immersed in a secular culture, we risk conforming and complying in subtle ways, instead of discerning what's true according to Scripture. He says, we all too easily take our lead from whatever everyone else is doing and adjust our opinions to whatever is deemed to be progressive. Again, Ollerton in his book cites a moment, actually, when former British Prime Minister David Cameron, remember him, addressed the Houses of Parliament after a vote by the Church of England Synod which didn't go the way society expected. Apparently, in response, Cameron asked, when is the church going to get with the program? Perhaps that's sadly a a typical political response, I don't know. But our culture does indeed have a program, doesn't it, of values and practices. And it seems the church is expected to get with it to avoid being considered old-fashioned. However, society's program keeps changing, doesn't it? But God's word is constant and true. Ollison says if the early Christians had simply got with the program, values we now take for granted would never have shaped Western civilization in the first place. And Tom Wright commented at the time actually saying if the church had allowed prime ministers to tell them what the program was, it would have sunk without trace in 50 years. So again, Paul says here, doesn't he, in verse 2 of chapter 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So then this renewal of the mind will inevitably have to involve some sort of transformation in us. A transformation of the way a person thinks And lives. And this can only be achieved, of course, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's unlikely to happen overnight. I can attest to that. Because it's an ongoing process, isn't it? The theologian, actually, John Stott, put it this way uh, when he said, As we reflect and act on God's Word and develop and cultivate a consistent prayer life, when we seek accountability from other believers and practice spiritual disciplines ourselves, we will allow ourselves to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And we will, as believers, be better able to discern what is good, what is acceptable, and what is in fact perfect according to God's standards. Well, that's all well and good, I hear you say. That's all good, solid, spiritual advice there. But it doesn't change the fact, does it, that we remain immersed in this secular culture. And we know, don't we, that as such, the world around us values material wealth and power and self-promotion above all else. And those kind of values can lead people, perhaps can lead us, to prioritize our own desires or our own needs, particularly above those of others. And I suppose unless we go and hide away in a bubble somewhere, uh, away from everyone, we can't physically change that fact, can we? That we still live in a world that prioritizes external appearance and success, um, encouraging people to strive for fame and power, and importantly, wealth. I mean, you only have to watch reality TV uh, to see that, and I don't by the way, but that's just my choice. But what Paul knew was that the values of this world are fleeting and temporary. You know, actually, why is it that so often we find that so many uh, apparently successful people, and I could name a number of them, people certainly with more money than they need, are often deeply unhappy in life, never satisfied, always wanting something more. Why is that? Well, of course, here then is the dichotomy for us as Christians because we know the values of God's kingdom are centered on other things. Love and justice and importantly, personal sacrifice. God calls us to put others first, doesn't he? Because we need to be seeking his agenda and not our own. And the stark reality is, as hard as it can seem for us at times, the reality is, if we align our values with God's, then this will enable us, won't it, to find true fulfilment and a true purpose in life. And so that, as a result, we will then be better able to experience the fullness of God's love and grace. But of course, aligning our values with those of God requires us to think differently about, firstly ourselves, but also towards our role uh, in the world around us. The author, Pete Portal, said uh, this. He said, Someone once said the church is like a swimming pool. All the noise comes from the shallow end. It's a good quote. But there's a world of difference, he says between the quiet, almost unnoticed nature of how Jesus describes his followers' deep influence in the world and that of the noisy, surface-level nature of social media soundbites. But, of course, we still get to choose, he says, which of these things we allow to influence us. Unassuming, unshowy, easily missable, but quietly transformative. That's how Jesus chose to describe the kingdom of God. And how perhaps we should want our faith to be. So in essence then, for us to experience true spiritual transformation, it will require us to have a willingness to surrender all of our plans to God. Not just some of them. And you know, that might not be as easy for us to do as it sounds. It may involve having to let go of certain personal ambitions of our own. Ambitions that may or may not have been in line with God's will for us. And remember Jesus' words of warning to us, actually, in Matthew's Gospel, when he said, and this is from the message translation, he said, anyone who intends to come with me must let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way to finding yourself, your true self. What kind of a deal is it to get everything you want but lose yourself? What could you ever trade your soul for? So we've considered briefly then how we are to be transformed into these living sacrifices by the renewing of our minds. And so I'd like to now to look briefly... And I appreciate I run fast and loose with the term briefly. But anyway, that reminds me actually of the quote from George Burns when he said that a sermon should have a good beginning and a good ending and both of those should be as close together as possible. (laughs) I think I've probably failed in that respect this morning. I'm sorry. But I want to now look more closely at how we become more like these loving servants. Firstly, within within our church family, of course. And then secondly, and more challengingly perhaps, becoming loving servants towards our enemies. And the central idea of this Uh, Andrew Olison suggests is encapsulated in verse 10 here of chapter 12 uh, where Paul says be devoted to one another in love and the word here uh, translated from the Greek Philadelphia of course literally means brotherly love because as members of the body of Christ we are all in the same family aren't we we are all brothers we're all sisters together and as such we should be devoted to each other. And Paul urged the Christians here, didn't he, in Rome, to serve each other as best they could with whatever gifts they had. Paul actually lists several kinds of gifts here, including prophecy and leadership and teaching, together with other uh, practical gifts uh, people had which would have led them perhaps to provide money and encouragement uh, or serving others. And all of us have gifts to offer, all of us. But it can be difficult, though, perhaps sometimes for us to discern perhaps for ourselves what those gifts might be. But Andrew Olison suggests in his book that perhaps we should simply start by helping wherever help is needed. And that might involve uh, doing some task which might appear menial to us. But whatever our perceived standing in life, we are called to be servants of others, following our master's example. For instance, uh, as he washed the feet of his disciples, Max Lucado put it like this. He said, Do you ever wonder what God does with promise breakers? He washes their feet. And Paul warns us too, doesn't he, uh, in verse 3 here. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. And in verse 16, do not be conceited. Again, Max Lucado said, We can rise too high, but can never stoop too low. What gift is He says, are you giving that he did not first give? What truth are you teaching that he didn't first teach? You love, but who loved you first? You serve, but who served the most? What are you doing for God, he says, that he could not do alone? How kind of him to use us. How wise of us to remember, Max says. I don't want to embarrass John here this morning, but when I worked in the church office several years ago now, I observed on many occasions, actually, John getting his hands dirty in service to others. I remember one particular occasion when he'd done rubber gloves. Do you remember this, John? To clear up a rather nasty blockage and resultant mess someone had kindly left in the toilet in the church center. We are called to serve with humility. And there's nothing more humble than having to clear up a mess in a toilet, trust me. I witnessed actually many brothers and sisters uh, serving each other in all sorts of ways, particularly during my time in the church office, and it was a humbling experience for me. Uh, For myself, I remember once having to clean up the mess left by a broken jar of jam that had been accidentally dropped from the Guernsey Welfare cupboard uh, and had broken all over the carpet in the balcony when it was up there before. It was a bit of a sticky situation, you might say. Um, Actually, I only did it because I couldn't find where John was at the time, but no, no. (laughs) I'm kidding, of course. I seem to remember initially I wasn't best pleased to have to go and clean up that mess. But I do remember, as I cleaned uh, up that mess, uh, that if the vicar can don rubber gloves to clean a toilet, I can clear up this jam. Funny the things that you remember. But that's the thing. When you do anything in service for others, you are witnessing, aren't you, to the love shown to you by God through Jesus. And it will be our vulnerability together that will cultivate deep and meaningful relationships with each other, being sincere, being generous towards each other and hospitable towards each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Helpfully, I think Andrew Olison suggests that we perhaps should discover our gifts by serving the more general way to begin with. Multitasking, as they say. Not always easy for us men, I accept. But over time, he suggests our particular gifts, maybe through the feedback of others, will reveal themselves to us. Andrew suggests, too, we should be patient, particularly if you still think you don't have any particular gift to offer, because we all work our way into our calling slowly, don't we? But surely. Max Lucado, too, says this about our gifts. He says, this may take time, this may take trial and error, but don't give up. Not every tuba player has the skills to direct the orchestra. If you can, then do. If you can't, blast away on your tuber with delight. In the meantime, it seems we should just muck in and help where help is needed to serve our brothers and sisters. But let's be honest, the final verses of chapter 12 here are perhaps even more challenging for us. Because Paul explains that we are called to live counterintuitive lives. As it says in verse 21 here, Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. What Paul is effectively saying here, isn't he, in verse 21, is love your enemies. It's one thing to be able to love those, of course, who love us back. That's not that difficult, perhaps. But a very different thing to love those who may hate us, or at least people who make our life difficult. But again, as Andrew Ollison suggests in his book, if we refer back to chapter 5 of Romans, we see Paul really summing up uh, how God treated his enemies. Paul said, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oliphant says, Romans 12 takes hold of the gospel that we have received and applies it to our treatment of others. If God loved us when we were his enemies, we ought to love our enemies, he says, and do good to those who hate us. So we are to love those who hate us or even intend us harm. Because the fact is that when we act in these surprising ways as Christians, returning kindness, if you like, for hate, we follow the way, don't we, of Christ. And we're able to overcome evil with good. We can only do this, as I've already said, by the power given to us through the Holy Spirit and because of the mercy and grace shown to us by God through Jesus In the first place. Max Lucado put it this way. When he was talking about God's grace. He said grace comes after you. It rewires you. From insecure. To God secure. From regret riddled. To better because of it. From afraid to die. To ready to fly. Grace is the voice. That calls us to change. And then gives us the power. To pull it off. So. Coming towards the close this morning, let's just think of those words again of Paul, shall we, at the start of chapter 12. I urge you. There's an urgency about it. I urge you, he's saying, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Romans 12 urges us, doesn't it, to become like living sacrifices, transformed by the renewing of our minds, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And then, to becoming these loving servants, serving our own brothers and sisters, yes, of course, but also those who don't yet know Jesus and who may be antagonistic at best towards us, using the gifts God has so generously given to us for that purpose. So, here's a question. For us all this morning to think about. Are we pleasing ourselves in the way we live our lives or are we learning what it means to serve and please others, to build them up as Jesus did? I know I need to, maybe we all need to, shift our focus a little from ourselves and see the needs of others as we continue to learn to see through Jesus' eyes. So just one last story from Andrew Olison's book, if I may, when he said this, he said, When I imagine what this looks like in practice, I think of my auntie Edna, who died a few years ago. She was truly a devoted follower of Jesus. During the week, she made clothes for emergency appeals at her own expense. On Sundays, she walked many miles in order to lead groups for children in village churches nearby. One day, when she was in her 90s with eyesight failing, two thugs broke into her home at night and robbed her. After they'd gone, she called my mother to explain what had happened. Her instinctive response? This is a real problem for me, Auntie Edna said. I already had a long prayer list, and now I have two more people to add to it. From then on, Auntie Edna prayed for her enemies every day. I don't know about you, but I want to be a bit more like Auntie Edna. Finally, and I do mean finally this time, I'd like to just go back to my trip up Snowden that I mentioned at the start, if you can remember that far back. On the way back down, we, we decided to walk down the mountain. Seemed like a good idea at the time. But unfortunately, as we descended the mountain, the cloud and the mist uh, began to roll in. Actually, there's an old Welsh joke that says, if you can't see the mountains, then it's raining. And if you can see the mountains, then it's about to start raining. It rains a lot in North Wales, if you haven't been there. But anyway, the clouds were rolling in. And at one point, we could barely see where we were going. It was quite a scary moment. Well, at least I was scared. I can't speak for Jeanette. She's a northern lass, and I don't mean the veil much further north than that. But to me, suddenly, the sheep didn't seem quite so friendly. Fortunately, though, we realized we were able to follow the path of the railway tracks down the mountainside, which as long as we kept that in sight, we knew it would lead us home, as it were. I'm not wishing to stretch my anecdote further than it ought to go, but I suppose then, as we descend, if you will, as Andrew Olliston says, from this lofty view of God's mercy, down into the realities of this world, to the everyday stresses and strains of normal life with its temptations and its problems and with its time constraints, a world within which we're called to be living sacrifices and loving servants towards those we love, but also, of course, towards those who don't love us back. The truth remains that as long as we keep our eyes on Jesus and we seek to be devoted to him and his plan for us by his mercy and grace we too will find our way home. Let's just pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit working in each one of us that you will indeed transform us. Transform us by the renewing of our minds, so that we're better able to offer ourselves, all of ourselves, as living sacrifices to you. Help us too to become these loving servants to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And help us, Father, to begin to act in surprising ways, to be counterintuitive in how we live our lives by putting others first. Help us to care less about how the world expects us to behave. And help us to simply fix our eyes on Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.